Welcome to America in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. I'm Cole McNeely. Coming up, we'll take a quick look at one of the top stories from TheCenterSquare.com and later executive editor of The Center Square, Dan McCaleb, and DC reporter Casey Harper will take a deeper dive into some of the top stories of the week. Coming up right after this on America in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. Hi, this is Chris Krug, publisher of The Center Square. Our team produces the nationally read and recognized news stories at TheCenterSquare.com, the country's fastest growing nonprofit, nonpartisan, state focused news and information site. We deliver essential information with a taxpayer sensibility through reporting that's easy to understand and easy to share with your friends and family. We know that you need information that allows you to understand what the governor and your local legislators are doing. Get the news that you need to know at TheCenterSquare.com. That's TheCenterSquare.com. TheCenterSquare.com. The Biden administration on Thursday announced a January deadline for new private sector vaccine mandates that could affect 100 million Americans. A number of groups quickly filed lawsuits saying the mandate is illegal. President Biden announced the mandate in September, but this week details were released, most notably that businesses with 100 or more employees must ensure their workers are vaccinated or require weekly COVID testing by January 4th. To read more about these stories and many others, visit thecentersquare.com. Now for a closer look, it's Dan McCaleb and Casey Harper. Thank you, Cole, and welcome back to America in Focus, powered by the Center Square. I'm Dan McCaleb, executive editor of the Center Square Newswire Service. Joining me again today, as he does every week, is Casey Harper, the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief. We are recording this on Friday, November 5th. Casey, here in the suburbs of Chicago, we're having overnight temperatures in the 20s. Is winter coming already? Winter is here uh, with, with all its fury, so... Get ready, get your jackets out, and you know what that means. It's really basically Christmas season. Dan, oh are boy. you, are you already one, are you a Christmas music are person? <laughs> oh, I am. I am. Oh my God! It's early mm-hmm. November, not till after Thanksgiving or even December. Should yeah. we be starting that stuff? I would sing Jingle Bells, but I think we'd have to pay some royalties or something. So <laughs> too early in the morning for me to hear you sing uh, Jingle Bells, Casey. <laughs> wow, thanks, Dan. <laughs> Why don't we get into it? For an off year, it was quite the uh, election season this week. Um, big uh, election news in Virginia and elsewhere around the country. Um, what does the uh, Casey? What does the election in Virginia mean for uh, potentially mean for next year's midterms? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, anyone who's been following the news has seen that there was big uh, Republican upsets this week. Um, uh, New Jersey's governor race was supposed to be easily won by the Democrat, and it was extremely close race. And at times, the Republican candidate was winning as the votes came in. Now, in Virginia, uh, Republicans really routed the Democrats in statewide elections and uh, appearing to take back the uh, their House of Delegates, the General Assembly. So, um, <clears throat> of course, the most famous race among those uh, was the governor's race where Terry McAuliffe uh, lost to the Republican uh, challenger. So, well, you know, of course, many people know that, but what does it mean is the big question. Well, it really means a few things. Uh, first off, um, it seems that when it came time to vote, uh, voters voted more along their uh, cares about the economy than they did about COVID. Um, we've seen recent polling that 
um, Americans, you know, concern over COVID is actually dropping and their concern about the economy is rising. And I think that played to Republicans' advantage. Um, another thing that we saw was the defund the police initiative, uh, which has been, you know, a big political topic. Uh, it was, you know, totally defeated in Minneapolis, which is really the start of the defund the police movement is because it's where, you know, George Floyd was tragically murdered. So to have defund the police uh, lose in Minneapolis is really going to, I think, deflate that movement. If you couldn't defund the police in Minneapolis, I don't think it's hard to push for doing it somewhere else. And so, you know, as far as the immediate political implications, uh, it's really twofold. One, you know, some analysts say this is a foretelling or a sign of what will happen in the midterm elections next year. In some ways, it's, you know, kind of hard to say when, when we're a year out. But if you're a Democrat right now, you're not feeling very uh, excited or comfortable about the trajectory. And then uh, even more immediate is the Democrats, you know, uh, trillions of dollars in spending, which they're frantically trying to get her across the finish line, the reconciliation bill and the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And uh, it's kind of, you know, you can you can argue both sides about how these elections play into that. But there's plenty of people saying that these bills go too far. Americans don't want this. And at the very least, Democrats do not have a mandate from the American people because they're so uh, voters were really rebuked them at the polls this week. So a lot to unpack there. Um, Casey, one thing in let's start with the, the Virginia governor's race. Um, where Glenn Youngkin, uh, Youngkin, a uh, uh, first-time political candidate, um, the Republican there, um, was trailing in the polls um, for months, uh, closed the gap at, at the end. Um, one one uh, policy issue that affected that race that you didn't mention was education. Um, mm-hmm. uh, McAuliffe, a former governor. Virginia's got uh, uh, sort of an odd rule that you cannot run for consecutive terms for governor. So he was the governor four years ago, uh, had to take a term off, uh, ran again this time. He infamously um, said at one of the debates uh, last month, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should do. Uh, Glenn Youngkin jumped on that issue. Um, uh, used it in advertisements, used it at, uh, at news conferences and, and, and addresses to his supporters, um, uh, said parents should have, absolutely should have uh, a right in their children's education. Of course, there were um, uh, uh, in Virginia and across the country, parents have been showing up at school boards upset over COVID policies, upset about the, the teaching of critical race theory. Um, um, uh, in his victory speech, Glenn Youngkin said this was a victory for school choice, and he planned um, uh, to, to promote school choice policies um, in, in Virginia. Um, what's your take on that whole thing? And, and was this a victory for parents? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that Republicans were able to take this issue and run with it. And Terry McAuliffe really made that very easy for them by making the comments you referred to. And then he really didn't apologize explicitly for them. He just, he tried to say he was taken out of context. He tried to accuse Republicans of twisting his words. But he never said, hey, that's not what I meant. I'm sorry. You know, that didn't happen. And so, uh, it, you know, it, it kind of plays into the, um, the the common criticism of Democrats that they're kind of uh, elitist who look down on everyday people to, to tell parents that they don't aren't smart enough 
to inform the education of their of their children. Um, really played right into that meme. And you know what you see from a lot of um, campaign uh, experts and you know political analysts right now is they're saying if Republicans can maintain this and become the parent or the party of parents, uh, that is going to be disastrous for Democrats in, in the next election because. Really, um, what we've seen in recent years is that these elections come down to suburban voters often. And because uh, rural goes red, inner city will go blue. And so it's that that buffer between them that can often make the difference. And suburban voters is a bunch of uh, parents like with kids who, you know, the reason many people move to the suburbs is because of their kids, because of, you know, want to have a bigger house and yard and all those kinds of things, school districts. And so if you can become, take up the mantle of parents, you can really potentially take suburbs around the country. And I think that is what, you know, Democrats who are huddled in strategy rooms for the, for the coming months, that's what they're going to be talking about. How do we reclaim this? How do we make sure that Republicans don't put down roots in this way? Um, now I'll say Virginia was kind of unique because there was a terrible, um, you know, sexual assault case in Loudoun County uh, that really riled a lot of people up. And they, the accusations, had, accusations that the school yeah. district um, uh, covered that up. Right. Right. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that made it, it was unique and that, and that helped make it such a big issue in the state. I mean, education is usually not the top issue uh, for voters and it's definitely not a leading issue for Republicans historically. But that case really helped propel it to the forefront. And it just seemed like Terry totally, Terry McAuliffe totally mishandled it. And Glenn Youngkin um, channeled that outrage. Uh, and the COVID mandates, you know, making kids wear masks. And a lot of parents are upset about that as well. Um, and so, you know, maybe if you're a parent, you'd say, okay, maybe I fought to have masks not be a thing or I did this and I, I, I lost and the school board disagreed with me. Okay. But to tell me that I can't even have a say in what my can, you know, I mean, I think that was just a bridge too far for most people. And Glenn Young can jump on it. Yeah. So let's you touched on also the defund the police um, uh, effort and the um, measure in Minneapolis where uh, the city council and the mayor uh, placed on the ballot this referendum to replace the police department with a department of public safety in which. You know, maybe maybe there'd be some police officers uh, uh, investigating and fighting crime. I don't know, but voters just resoundingly um, killed that. So, what what do you think that means for defund the police efforts across the country? Voters in Minneapolis, of course, um, <clears throat> where George Floyd was uh, murdered uh, last year, was 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 essentially the spark. Uh, mm -hmm. of these anti-police protests across the country that led to rioting in, in major cities everywhere. Um, do, do you think because of voters um, essentially resoundingly saying no to defund the police in Minneapolis, does that hinder defund the police efforts nationwide? I think it will hinder it, but I don't think it'll kill it overall. Um, you're right that Minneapolis is really the spark for this movement. Um, you know, what we've seen uh, the last you know, year and a half is that violent crime has risen significantly. Uh, it's no no small rise at all. I have you know uh, some of the data before me. I mean, the FBI data homicides. This is just for last year, 2020. Homicides rose nearly 30 percent wow. in 2020 in one year. Aggravated assaults rose uh, by 12 percent. 
which is the first time in four years that violent crime rose from the previous year. Um, there's um, there's 21,500 about reported murders in 2020, which is the highest you know figure we've seen in decades. Um, you know, some small nonviolent offenses decreased, and uh, that I, mean, I guess that's good news. But things like home burglaries, but people were stuck at home right during exactly. the pandemic. Pandemic, so you're not going to break into a home if you know everybody's there. So that right. makes sense. Right, but if you know that the po the police force is uh, holding back or been defunded, you you might be less worried about having a detective investigate your you know murder for weeks <laughs> if you're right. you know uh, battling over turf turf with someone or something like that. So violent crime has exploded. At the same time, um, now this is not totally related, but so that that is happening, and there's there's questions about anti police sentiment fueling that defund the police. A lot of police officers. And many cities are being told to to hold back, to not aggressively police certain neighborhoods where they know that the uh, higher percentage of crime is happening or coming from. Uh, so a lot of those factors are playing in. A lot of cops feel like that if they do get into a, a sticky situation where maybe they have to make a tough decision, that they won't have the support of their, you know, of their uh, police department because of the politics involved, that they're you know, police department might throw them under the bus for political expediency. And so all those factors have made, you know, um, the kind of more proactive policing decrease. Now, at the same time, what's compounding that more, more recently is these are these COVID-19 uh, vaccine mandates. And so now, of course, every industry is experiencing some level of people who are saying, well, I don't want to take the vaccine, but it's hitting uh, local police departments pretty hard. And so, you know, for example, New York City, they recently hit the deadline for uh, municipal workers needing to be vaccinated. And as of last week, there's 26,000 unvaccinated uh, city workers um, and including 17% of police officers. So, you know, that's, I mean, <laughs> in a city as big as New York City, seven, losing 17% of your police force because they're put on unpaid leave. Um, so maybe they won't ultimately be fired. Maybe they'll come around. Maybe the city will uh, cave. But you see police departments around the country who are losing, you know, 5, 10, uh, 15, in this case, 17 percent of their police officers overnight in a time when crime is the highest it's been in decades. So we're going to touch on we're going to dig deeper into the uh, vaccine mandate ma mandates in just a second. One last question on this topic. Um, we, we referenced up front the midterms next year. Every single member of the U.S. House uh, is up for re-election uh, in 2022, about a third of the U.S. Senate. The Democrats have the slightest of margins, the slightest of advantages in the U.S. House. It's a 50-50 split in the U.S. Senate with the vice president getting the uh, deciding vote that tips it to the Democrats. But are Democrats worried uh, about what this week means heading into next year? Uh, do they face losing the House and potentially the Senate? I think they are very worried. They have a <laughs> they have a razor thin uh, majority in the Senate, as thin as it can possibly be. Um, the House, you know, they have a very small majority there. You know, you remember what happened um, in 2010 when President Obama, um, you know, maybe made some missteps, passed some pretty aggressive uh, legislation, and then the Tea Party formed, came back, and just walloped Democrats in the you know in the 2010 elections. That's happened a couple of times. Um, it's it's also pretty normal for the midterm election at 
in a first term presidency to be um, a swing election. So if a Republican wins, you know, you remember uh, Trump won and then two years in his presidency, a lot of Democrats got elected. It's kind of a rebuttal to him. So that's already kind of baked in. And to see these big losses on top of that, it's showing that it could be a much more, um, you know, people are using the term red wave, but it's something like that uh, in, in November. And, and the, the last thing about that is that President Biden's approval ratings are very low for this point in the presidency. They're, they're um, honestly, the only person as low as him in, in recent years has been President Trump. And he's well below where uh, President Obama and other presidents have been at this point. So different polls show him in different places. Some have him as low as 42% approval rating. Um and somewhere around you know fifty one percent disapproval rating. So if that if that number stays where it is, that is something really to pay attention to for our listeners because that trickles down. Because people who are upset at the president, you know, they just go and they might vote down the party line. They just hit you know click or click or write in all Republicans. And so um, I think you saw that in Virginia, people upset at the president just voted Republican. And that's going to happen in the terms if Biden isn't able to turn around this uh, public opinion rating. Let's turn to these vaccine mandates, <clears throat> Casey. Um, yesterday on Thursday, the Biden administration um, announced that it's that his mandate on pri- the private sector employers, uh, employers that employ more than uh, 100 workers um, will have to enforce um, a vaccine mandate on all of their workers, uh, or if the workers decide not to get the uh, vaccine mandate or the vaccine, that they have to be tested weekly. This starts on January 4th. Immediately, um, business groups and others um, file lawsuits against it, saying it's unconstitutional, it's unlawful. Tell us more about this. Yeah, this is a big story and it's not going away. This is going to be what you're hearing about through the whole holiday season, uh, which honestly may not help the uh, approval ratings we just talked about. I don't know if people want to be debating mandates over their, their turkey and a holiday ham, but um, yeah, this they, is going to be... If, if they get a turkey and a holiday ham, better get it soon. Right, if they can afford one with the inflation and it's able to be shipped to them in time. <laughs> so the uh, the Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which people say OSHA is the accurate for that. You're going to hear about OSHA. OSHA is in charge of a lot of workplace safety things in the country. Many people don't know that, but, um, you know, the people who make you wear hard hats on a construction site, OSHA, it's about workplace safety. So um, they uh, are the ones in charge of this and they released, you know, more details on the regulation. Biden is really the one behind this. And it, as you said, January 4th is the deadline. So the few things that are really interesting about this, uh, one is it's kind of unprecedented to have a, the, you know, employee safety agency enforcing a broad nationwide mandate with a fine on it. And so the fine is $14,000 per violation. You know, the White House did a press call um, with an, you know, unnamed senior administration official, um, Biden administration official. And they, they talked about these. And, and it was really interesting out what stood out to me about that call was this quote. So they said, if we identify that an employer is willfully violating a standard, then that penalty is significantly higher than a workplace that is not willfully doing so. So they're looking at intent. They're seeing who is basically, if someone is standing up to this on principle, they're going to be severely punished. Um, and, you know, $14,000 per item. So you can imagine it's kind of unclear exactly how the finding will work. And I think we'll get more detail on that, but you can imagine if someone has, 
uh, a few a few hundred employees and that are refusing the vaccine um, and defying the mandate. And the employer is sympathetic to them. And he lets it go away. You could be 14,000 per employee, potentially per day, which, you know, I'm going to math. If you have a few thousand employees, we're getting, you can be hundreds of millions of dollars actually pretty quickly if you fight this for a couple, a few months, you know? And so this is a, this is not a small thing. This is a way to really uh, bludgeon people into compliance. This fine 14,000 may sound small, but if you have several employees daily defying this, um, and you're not stopping them or firing them, essentially, then you can really rack up fines. It also requires that people wear masks um, on the on the work site. One interesting thing to add into this, and I'll, I'll toss it back to you, Dan, is that um, the latest Rasmussen polling actually found that uh, more than half, 52% of Americans support those who would resist the workplace mandate. So many Americans you know, have gotten the, the mandate or gotten the vaccine about over 70%. But even then, the majority of them don't think someone should be fired or lose their job for not getting it. Well, and, and this is coming at a time, Casey, when um, when there's a, a, a massive worker crisis, worker shortage across the country. Um, mm-hmm. we, the, you briefly re- referenced the supply chain crisis. Um, um, we've got uh, ships that we can't unload because there's not enough workers to, load, to unload them. Even when we do unload them, we've got a, a truck driver shortage. Um, so we can't uh, transport uh, goods across the country in a timely fashion. We have stores right now with empty shelves, people warning um, that uh, for Thanksgiving and Christmas, there's going to be empty shelves. What does a vaccine mandate like this, you referenced the Rasmussen poll, um, obviously we've seen um, resistance to vaccine mandates in, in hospitals and um, uh, police departments across the country. What could this potentially mean? This January 4th is two months away right now. What could this mean for that, that worker shortage right now? And, and is, is, the, is it possible there's going to be a large percentage of workers who are going to be forced to leave their jobs or fired because they refuse to get the man, a, a vaccine? And what's that going to mean for the economy overall? Yeah, it's almost certain that there are going to be workers fired over this. We've already seen, you know, I referenced police departments earlier, but many cops have been, you know, taking early retirements. They're leaving, you know, moving to other departments that don't have a mandate. Uh, you're already seeing it there. You're seeing it in other industries. It's almost certain. Uh, you know, it's hard to gauge the percentage because I'm sure there are people who have been holding out on getting the vaccine who, when it comes down to it, just won't be willing to give up their job for it. Um, but there are plenty of people who will be willing to give up their job. So we're going to see, you know, uh, you know, widespread job transition. I think, you know, this is kind of a prediction. I think you're going to see um, people advertising that they don't have the vaccine mandate and, uh, and that people should come work for them. I think you're going to see when well, we talked about these lawsuits and it'll be interesting to see this could potentially be expedited to get ahead of that January 4th deadline. So it may be that we have some sort of court ruling before January 4th um, that at least puts a stay on this and delays that deadline. Um, and I think actually the Biden administration knows that I've seen, I've noticed a trend in there um in some of these men, the, the eviction moratorium, which was, you know, they even said themselves was unconstitutional, but they did it anyway. I think what they, their strategy in passing or enacting some of these questionably constitutional measures is that even if it doesn't hold up, it will motivate a lot of people to 
get vaccinated who think it will hold up. So even if they think it's going to get struck down by January 4th, they know that between now and then, you know, maybe tens of millions of people will get vaccinated and comply in anticipation. I think that's, it's honestly like part of their strategy. And um, so that that's, you asked about uh, some of the implications, what we can expect to see. I think, I think those are a few things. Um, and you also referenced the lawsuit. So there's a few groups already suing um, Ron DeSantis, um, Republican governor of Florida is suing. There's a few groups. Uh, and, and one of them is the Job Creators Network, which represents um, a lot of a lot of businesses. And this is a I'll just read you this quote. This is kind of some of the language that's being used against this mandate. They said the Biden administration's vaccine mandate is clearly illegal and will have a devastating impact on our small business community and our entire economy. Um, we're suing on the uh, the administration on the grounds that OSHA does not have the authority to impose such a mandate. Even if OSHA did have the power, there is neither the grave danger nor necessity to issue such a sweeping regulation. So that's what you're hearing from opponents. That's the kind of language you're going to see in lawsuits. And it'll be interesting to see if the courts intervene between now and January 4th. Well, and, 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 and the other, OSHA, as you, as you mentioned, is, is responsible for workplace safety. But isn't there some sort of a hypocrisy uh, here where employers of 100 or more workers um, are required to enforce this vaccine mandate, but employers of fewer than a hundred, it, it must be a, that, that when you have 99 workers, it's a safe workplace. Uh, but when you have a hundred or more, <laughs> it must be an unsafe workplace. Is that, is, that just seems so contradictory. Yeah. I, I think uh, a lot of people would agree with the kind of arbitrary nature of that. Um, you could speculate as to why it's done that way. I think the, the leading speculation would be that Large, you know, corporations are probably going to be the most willing to comply and have the most financially to lose. Um, corporations have also shown an unwillingness to be um, politically anti-COVID anything. Um, but you know, doing it this way would be a way to uh, get you know millions and millions of people vaccinated without touching on the small mom and pop shops around the country, which are probably going to be the ones most fiery, most resistant, you know, honestly, you know, small business owners, um, I believe lean Republican. And so because of you know taxes and different things. So uh, it'll be, you know, they could be that he tries to lower it down though to 50 and then, you know, 25, well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, um, but you're right that it's kind of, it does seem like an arbitrary uh, number. Casey, we could talk about this all day. Uh, we didn't even get into the the enforcement aspect mm -hmm. of it. I mean, this this is going to affect more than a hundred million workers across the country. How many staff is our taxpayers going to have to fund for OSHA to add to um, enforce this mandate for a hundred million workers across the country? I don't want you to answer that question right now because I want to. In the limited time we have, I want to touch on one final topic. Um, so let's move on. Uh, we only have a brief amount of time. The Second Amendment uh, was on trial this week as the U.S. Supreme Court uh, took up a major gun rights, this case, um, uh, out of New York. Tell us about that. Sure. This is a, a pretty um, significant Second Amendment case. So uh, the, the quick summary, as we run out of time, is that a couple guys in New York State applied for um, you know, concealed carry permits, and they were denied. They were denied the permit because uh, New York State has pretty strict laws um, 
um, and requirements. You, you essentially, if you want to have a concealed carry in New York, you're in its way, it's like being in its, uh, guilty until proven innocent. The answer is no, unless you prove that you have a really compelling reason to carry concealed carry a gun. And so they sued and uh, it went before the Supreme Court Wednesday. Based on the questioning of the justices, it seems like they were actually pretty open to overturning this law or changing it. As with all Supreme Court rulings, they could be very narrow and limited to this case, or they could use it as an opportunity to make more broad, sweeping rulings. And so that's something to be on the lookout for. There are other similar laws in other states. So it could be possible that concealed carry is opened up to a lot of people in states that, that don't allow it. But you know, one the one wording that stood out to me and that those uh, challengers to the law use is the high and arbitrary standard that the state has set. And I think that that is kind of what it's going to come down to. Um, what what kind of standard can the state set that's not high and arbitrary? You know, a comparison to this would be um, abortion cases. You know, Texas, uh, not this most recently, but a few years ago, uh, passed a law that um, abortion clinics had to have all these requirements on their facilities. And so it basically had to have like surgical level, you know, they, they put all these requirements um, on what kind of office an abortion doctor essentially had to have. And so it was clearly to the court, not just intended to make sure that abortion clinics were safe. It was intended to lower the number of abortions. Right. And so the court didn't side with them. They said it was um, you know, the, the intent was clear, clearly to just lower abortion. And so it could be a similar kind of argument here with this New York case, which is you're not just trying to make sure the right people get guns. You've actually purposefully created a, a standard that's so high and arbitrary because you don't want anyone to really have these guns. Um, so I think that'll be the question at hand and we'll see it you know, on Wednesday. They seemed open to actually changing the law. And we expect a decision next spring. Yes. Yep. All right. Thank you, Casey. That is all the time we have. This has been the America in Focus podcast for Casey Harper. I'm Dan McCaleb. We'll talk to you next week.